Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe. All right, Joe, uh, this may be the best French Open I've ever seen. I've been watching it more than I've ever watched it before. And part of it, I think, is because I haven't been able to play tennis lately. You and I have both been a little bit confirmed lately. And I think that getting to watch the, this level of tennis this year has been even more exciting for me since I haven't been able to do it. And there was a match yesterday that both of us watched in the quarterfinals that it's hard to say it wasn't the greatest tennis match I've ever seen. Uh, Nadal and Djokovic, this is the 59th time they had played each other going into it. Djokovic had the edge 30 to 28. And of course, it's like a tale of two different careers because in 2005 to 2010, Nadal was it. He was the golden child of tennis. He came in as a teenager, dominated. And of course, the French Open is where he dominates the most. He's won 13 times. He's going for his 14th title. And in the very beginning of their rivalry, Nadal dominated Djokovic. And, of course, we've seen what's happened in the last 10 years when it comes to Djokovic and tennis. And there's an argument that even though he's behind Nadal by one in overall majors, that Djokovic is the most dominating player ever to play. I mean, you and I have talked about this before. When he hits that A game, no one can compete with him when it comes to the A game. And so the lead-in to this match was so fascinating to me because, of course, Nadal won the Australian Open earlier this year because Djokovic uh, wouldn't get his COVID vaccination and they wouldn't let him play. It was kind of an interesting thing. He was almost like he was put in jail in Australia and not allowed to play in this tournament when they, they told him they would allow him to play. And then there was a public outcry and they wouldn't allow him to play. And so he missed out on the chance to, you know, to get one ahead because at that point they were all tied. Federer was a 20, Nadal was a 20 and Djokovic was a 20. Well, Djokovic gets kicked out of it. Nadal wins his 21st, and now he's ahead of him. And so this all leads into what's going on here at the French Open. And Nadal goes out, had a little bit of a rough time. Uh, he had to play Algier Alizim. And what's fascinating about uh, Algier Alizim, really great up-and-coming Canadian player, but Algier Alizim is being coached by Nadal's uncle, Tony Nadal. And Tony Nadal, uh, there's an argument he's the greatest tennis coach that ever lived because 15 of the majors that Nadal had were with, uh, were with Tony Nadal as his coach. And, of course, uh, now Ali Azim is a player who, in the course of a year being under Tony Nadal, has gone from being ranked over 100 to being the number nine player in the world. So this was a fascinating uh, – you know, that was a fascinating match in that – uh, Ali Azim knew what Nadal was going to do. He got all the same kind of training. And Nadal had to gut it down in five sets against a very great, motivated 21-year-old Canadian player in Ali Azim, who's being coached by the coach who coached him his whole life, essentially. And then on the flip side, Djokovic hadn't lost a set, was just destroying everybody. And so, Joe, all of this led up to a match in the quarterfinals between Nadal and Djokovic where it seemed like the writing was on the wall that Djokovic was going to destroy Nadal and once again reassert himself as the king of tennis. But that's not what we saw, was it? No, no, it wasn't. And kind of like you alluded to, you think about um, all the effort that uh, Nadal had to have Sunday in that match, you know, going five sets, you know, you would have not um, been that surprised. He would have just been out of gas against uh, Djokovic. And so that was another thing that surprised me is the fact that he was able to, 
uh, still outlasts Djokovic and didn't even go five sets. Well, yeah, and what's fascinating about it is, you know, Nadal is someone who's – he's been hampered by a lot of injuries. I mean, he's 36 years old. Well, he's been 36 uh, on Friday. And, you know, a lot of his career he's had knee troubles, he's had foot troubles, he's had back troubles. And – but the hallmark of his career is that when he's playing good, he, he's, he's got the most effort of anybody, he hustles to get everything, he's got good endurance – and so I know there were a lot of concerns that he backed out of a couple tournaments before this due to concerns with his foot. And so I think that everybody was writing him off, probably even against Ozer Ali Asim when it went to the fifth set. And certainly coming off that to have to play a Djokovic who was motivated and who was very refreshed and hadn't had to play any kind of epic matches definitely made it one where, you know, the odds would tell you that Djokovic had it in the bag. And, Joe, what fascinated me even more about this is the way the match unfolded. You saw Nadal get off to the really hot start, which is what we all knew he needed and able to win. Because I think that Medvedev kind of gave you the avenue that is to beat Djokovic. You got to kind of go out there and kill him. Kill him. Mm-hmm. Because Djokovic is someone that he's – his hallmark is the fact that he, the later it gets in matches, his, his talent outshows and his precision is going to get you – but he is prone to be angry and play a little bit bad. So if you can really get after him early, that's the way you can beat him. Well, Nadal did that in the first set. And then in the second set, Nadal got out to a 3-0 lead. And at that time, I was thinking, okay, if Nadal can close this one out, I think he'll win. But Djokovic, patented his style, came back and owned the rest of that set. And when I saw that happen, that was when I was really concerned that Nadal no longer had a chance to win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was definitely uh, concerning. And, you know, you're right. That's kind of usually the script uh, to beat Djokovic. But one other thing real quick as an aside, I just keep having kind of a takeaway for me watching these matches is the age of these guys, you know, well into their 30s. Just from personal experience, like I feel like, you know, once you hit 30, at times, you know, you can perform well athletically. But there's just something about kind of the fear of injury that's always in the back of my mind, like the older I've gotten. Like, it's easier for me to pull a hamstring and things like that. And the fact that these guys are able to play with just such, like, reckless abandon, and it's like that doesn't even phase them at all. And it just really impresses me, even more so than other contemporary athletes in other sports. Well, Joe, let me give you an idea of what they did last night. Um, This is one of the first times they've done night matches at the French Open. And Nadal and Djokovic didn't even start playing until about 8.45 last night. And they didn't get done until after 1 a.m. in the morning. And that's what those guys went through. And not only that, they weren't playing in weather like what we had where it was hot. It was actually cold in Paris. They were playing in like 58-degree weather, essentially. You saw everybody on TV with blankets over themselves huddled up because that's what kind of weather they were dealing with. And, I mean, Nadal had just gotten off of playing almost a five-hour match two days before and Djokovic, he's 35. I mean, he's only a year younger than Nadal. And, you know, like I said, one of the hallmarks of Djokovic is that I've never seen him get tired in a match and the five-set matches favor him. Nadal is like that, but he also has had to deal with so many injuries that I really thought that the only chance that he had was to do what Medvedev does and just go in and sweep, you know, Djokovic in, in three sets. And like I said, when he, when, he, when he got off to that start like that, I thought, okay, this is good. But when Djokovic came back and won that second set, it kind of made me think of a lot of the big-time matches I've seen with Djokovic when he gets pushed. 
He did the same thing with Berrettini. I saw him do it with uh, one uh, Martin Del Potro a while back, where Del Potro got out to a hot start but couldn't close him out in the second set, and Djokovic came back and, and took him out. But to Nadal's credit, what was amazing is he came out in that third set and he played even better than he did in the first set and really cleaned up a lot of the errors that he had and closed that one out quick. Mm-hmm. But what was the best thing about this match was that fourth set. That was some of the best tennis I've ever seen because Nadal got down five to two and was able to come back and get it to a tie break. And when Djokovic was not playing bad tennis, in fact, I'd say Djokovic was playing probably B plus level tennis. And there was one game that I think went on for like 11 minutes where Djokovic had to break or Nadal had to break Djokovic on his serve in order to get it to a tie break. And he did it. And I mean, it was, it was fascinating. And then the way that tiebreaker unfolded with the dog getting out to what a five, one lead and then getting up to six, two or get up to six, one. And then Djokovic won three points in a row. And you could almost sense it on that point, Joe, the very last point of it, that if Djokovic would have won that point, that he was going to come back and win that tiebreak. Yeah, I was really worried, you know, rooting for Nadal at that tiebreak point because wouldn't at that point would Djokovic have gotten to serve after that too? Yes, he would have. He would have gotten to serve with a chance to tie it up. And then at that point, if he wins two more points, he, he wins it. Yeah, I remember thinking Nadal's got to put him away here serving. Like, he, he needs to win right there. Yeah, like when it got to 6-4, I was like, this is the point. You either win this point or Djokovic comes back and wins the set. And I think that it would have been highly unlikely that Nadal could have won a fifth set against uh, Novak Djokovic. Right. I agree. Yeah. And so just, it was, it was a really amazing match and you could tell that Nadal was really like, you know, going to have a good chance when Djokovic got angry and started slamming the net in the middle of the third set. And I was like, okay, this is how you get him. And what Djokovic will do is when he gets down, he likes to use his emotions uh, to frustrate younger players. And, you know, he'll, he'll get angry. He'll be like a little bit unsportsmanlike. And that does mess with a lot of people. I mean, he did it to Sissipas when Sissipas was up two sets and was about to, you know, had a match point against him. And Sissipas went the other way and Djokovic ended up beating him. But, you know, there's a, there's a good thing about Nadal being older and having played him 59 times. He knows the way Djokovic acts. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a compelling rivalry. Because, you know, you talk about just how uncanny it is with Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic to all be playing like around the same generation. And they're so close to each other with the championships and Grand Slam titles. But you also got to think about the dynamic, I feel like, psychologically with Nadal versus Djokovic. Because you have Djokovic, you know, probably personally feeling like he's the best. But if you're Nadal, you're like thinking to yourself, this guy was a party crasher. You know, this was just Federer and I, like this was our rivalry. And you interfered with this as an awkward third will. And so I feel like there's got to be that intensity. Nadal definitely has to enjoy beating him. Well, and, and he does. And what's so interesting about it, Joe, too, is that the difference way they're received. I mean, people in the crowds love Nadal, especially the French Open. I mean, he's won 13 of them. He's going for his 14th. And the, the, Spanish, the Spanish fans just go in flocks to go to Paris to go watch him play. And, of course, a lot of the Parisians love him, too. And meanwhile, you have Djokovic, who's, you know, he's an Eastern European. 
A lot of times their personalities just appear a little bit standoffish, aloof. He's a, you know, he's angry out there on the court. He challenges ref calls a lot. He slams his racket, you know, throws his racket. You know, he had the thing where he got kicked out of the tournament for hitting a ball at one of the ball girls and like injuring her, you know, and, and it's so fascinating because, you know, Djokovic, when you read about his life, he is a likable person in pretty much every regard, but, you know, he's got a fascinating story growing up in, in war-torn Yugoslavia, having to get out in order to play tennis, and he really does care about his country of Serbia, and you can see it, but on the court, he's the consummate bad guy, and everybody loves Nadal, and you could see it in that match, and I told you this, like, going into it, watch the way the fans treat him, because nobody out there wanted Djokovic to win. And sometimes he can use that to his advantage, but I felt like when it started getting about 1 a.m. last night in France, it finally got to him a little bit, and nobody liked him and nobody wanted him to win. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can see that for sure. Yeah. And so just, just interesting. I think tennis is like maybe one of the only sports where you really get that. You get it a little bit with golf, but the, the crowd doesn't get as involved in golf. You know, I'm sure that people playing Tiger when, you know, they're in that, in that matchup with them, that that can get to them a little bit. But with tennis, it's just so much more intense, especially with those fans in France who, you know, I feel like are, are more intense and, and you know, and, and they make themselves known more than any other fan base at any other major, because you can hear it all the time. The uh, the line judge saying, uh, "Si vous play, merci." Like, shut up, y'all. <laughs> stop, yeah. stop walking in the middle of points. And in that, I've never seen it as much as I did last night. Yeah, there's something about like you know the the flow of tennis. I think lends itself even more so than golf to kind of having that atmosphere. Because like golf, everything's more spaced out. You know, you might have like different fans kind of uh, appropriated in different areas of the course. Whereas in tennis, you're going to have, like, the same people, like, right there the entire match. Yeah. And so, I mean, just really, truly epic match. And what's, what's great and crazy about it is that it was a quarterfinal. Nadal still got to win two more matches to get his 22nd major and his 14th title at Roland Garros. And, Joe, I'm a little bit worried about his next match because he's going to have to take on Zverev, who's the number three overall player in the world, Zverev is is no pushover. He won the gold medal this year, beating Djokovic to deny Djokovic, you know, part of his uh, his overall uh, trying to get the you know the the mythical slam where you get all four majors and get the gold medal. Of course, he lost in the Australian Open to Medvedev and didn't get that either. But at that point, uh, Zverev beat Djokovic when he was going for still being able to try and get that. And Zverev's 25 years old, a really good uh, German player who was born in Russia. He's like six foot seven. He looks like a bad guy from like a 1980s movie. He's got this flowing blonde hair. He's got the headband. And he beat up uh, on Alcaraz the other day. And Alcaraz is kind of like everybody's been comparing him to the new Nadal. He's a teenager. He's 19 years old. He's Spanish. He's the highest-ranked uh, teenager in men's tennis since Nadal back in 2005. And Zverev wiped the floor with it and beat him in straight sets. So it's a very good thing for Nadal that he's going to get an extra day of rest. And he's not playing tomorrow. He's going to play on Friday because Zverev has had a very easy run to this point, is younger, and is – I mean, Nadal might be in for another four- or five-set match if he wins it all. 
yeah, yeah, I'm glad you, you mentioned a good point about having that extra day, day of rest, like two days opposed to one. I think that definitely helps give Nadal a better chance. But, yeah, it, it'll still be very tough, you know, to kind of come back um, after having two consecutive, you know, just such emotionally, uh, uh, you know, involved matches like that. Definitely. And I would say that um, if this match is being played tomorrow, I would actually probably favor Zeverev to win. But I think getting that another day of rest is going to be so crucial. And it seems like Nadal is on a mission right now. And especially when you think it's almost like his matches have kind of peaked in the middle and his like tougher matches were on the front end and mm -hmm. is going a little bit downhill because I would say that out of the opponents that he's had, uh, Algier Ali Azim because of the familiarity and because of Tony Nadal being his coach would be the second hardest. And of course, Djokovic is going to be the hardest. And I would say Zverev is there maybe just a small step under Ozer Aliassim only because of the familiarity. I would say and for other players, Zverev's better. But then you look at if he wins, if he beats Zverev, he's going to play either uh, in a Norwegian teenager, Casper Ruud, who's good, but never been in a situation like this. Or he's going to take on Marin Cilic, who is a is a great player, and actually, you know, is now the only person outside of the Big Four, which would be Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, and Andy Murray, to have made the semifinals of all four majors. But he's someone that's a journeyman. He's a Croatian that's won he won one U.S. Open back in 2014, and he's made other semifinals. But he's a guy that's always kind of been borderline top ten, and he's older. And I just don't think that he would have a realistic chance against Nadal if he even wins at all against Casper Ruud. And so I think that, you know, if he can beat Zverev, he's going to win. Yeah, it seems like that semifinal, semifinal matchup will really be telling as far as his chances. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, if Zverev wins, then he's going to get his first major. He's already won an Olympic gold medal. He lost in – I think he's made the finals of one other major. He's somebody that you're going to see win multiple majors in the future – and he might be catching it all at the right time. And like I said, if he had had two days of rest, I definitely would favor Zeverev in this one. I can see that for sure. And Joe, switching over to the women's side of it, you know, obviously there hasn't been all the fanfare that you had with Nadal and Djokovic and, you know, possibly Nadal's last French Open. But there's a really fascinating storyline here too. You have Coco Golf, who, of course, has been the last two years – you know, she's the next Serena Williams. Everybody's putting it out there like that. She's got the talent of a teenager that no one's seen since Serena. And she hasn't, you know, she's made pretty good headway in a major, but hasn't gotten that close to winning one. And all of a sudden now she's ranked number 19. She's had a run through this tournament where she hasn't lost a set. And it's just looked excellent. And she's made it to the semifinals. And she's taken on an unranked Italian um, in cesarean and it looks like there's a good chance she's going to make the finals but if she makes the finals she's going to take on world number one Iga Zwiatek from Poland who has now won 33 matches in a row and what's fascinating is if Zwiatek can win her next match and take on I would say presumably Coco Golf in the final she has the chance to tie Venus Williams record of 35 matches won in a row and she's already at the level Serena was. And so the person standing in her way, most likely to, you know, prevent her from winning a major and tying Venus Williams's record is basically the new Williams sister in Coco Golf. So I think that's kind of a cool story in and of itself. Yeah. A lot of irony there. I guess it's just kind of meant to be meant to happen maybe for that matchup to be there. 
Absolutely. And, you know, what I think is great is from the Coco Golf perspective that she has the chance, if she's going to win her first major, it's going to be against Ika Zwitek, the way she's playing. And Zwitek is on a whole other universe, the way that she's playing. This year, she's been Novak Djokovic-level dominant. You're just not hearing about it as much. And so in order for Coco Golf to get her first major, she's going to have to be absolutely the best of the best and the best that we've seen in probably 20 years. Gotcha. When, you know, a lot of times if you win a championship like that, get over the hump, it is satisfying to go through the best. It is. And so if Coco Golf is really able to take that next step and to legitimately be in a Williams sister type sentence, then she has to win that match. She has to go out there and beat the world number one. Uh, and based on what I've seen with Iga's Whitehead, I don't know that Coco Golf is ready for that yet. Coco Golf's playing great tennis right now, but Zwitek is playing at a level that I don't know that I've ever seen one in tennis right now. Right. That'll be tough. Yeah. Well, and so a lot, of, a lot of fascinating things in the French Open, and when we come back next week, we'll be talking about the winners. Hopefully Nadal, fingers crossed, been a, been a Nadal fan now for probably over almost 20 years, you know. And, uh, and I'm also a big fan of Coco Golf. I'd like to see her get her first major. Every time I see her get interviewed, she is such a confident, uh, you know, really you know, intelligent, nice, like mild-mannered young woman that I want to see succeed. And I think she's great for women's tennis if she can get there. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, you can listen to all of our episodes, including this one and our uh, visit earlier with Kerry Longstaff talking Southern Miss baseball and his trip to the NSC National Stadium. Uh, you can catch all of our episodes on Spotify. You can also uh, get on YouTube and see all of our most recent episodes with a video and check out our Dan and Joe Sports Show YouTube channel. And of course, you can follow us on Facebook and like us on Twitter at DJ Sports Show. And as always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe.